Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, October 7th, 2015. We will be doing our light episode today as I continue to ramble my way through the book of Genesis. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy, bizarre things being said about God, His Word, His will for your life, and all kinds of weird things that are not actually what God's Word says. And so we use sound biblical hermeneutics, good exegesis, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture, proper distinction of law and gospel, a lot of context, 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 in order to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says in context. And you'll notice that we not only teach you uh, by example as far as, you know, here's what not to do. We also tried to show you, well, here's what it looks like to take God's word seriously, to work your way through a biblical text, and to uh, show us what's really going on in those texts as it pertains to salvation and our life, you know, you know things like that. And uh, so, you know, Fridays we end off with good sermons. Wednesday, oftentimes, most often, we will uh, do a good lecture. And I've been working my way through the book of Genesis at the congregation that I serve as a pastor, which is uh, Kongsvinger Lutheran Church up in Oslo, Minnesota. Uh, This is where we will be having the 2016 Pirate Christian Radio Conference, by the way, in August. Again, details coming out in a few weeks. We'll open up registration. It'll be limited to the first 150 registrants. No kidding. So um, let's uh, talk about what we're going to do on today's episode, and we'll get right to it. Um, Today we're going to be taking a look at Genesis 25, and I'm going to key in on something there related to the word of faith, prosperity, heresy, and I think we're going to end up in the book of Ecclesiastes. I just want to let you know it's kind of strange, the rambling road that we'll be taking, so grab a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 25, and let's get started. All right, we're going to get started here. Come on in, grab a Bible, something to write with. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, last week we started to continue our way through the book of Genesis, and I made the point that in this section of the book of Genesis, it's vital that you keep in mind who has the ball. And that's the phrase that I'm using, who has the ball. And the ball is the Word of God. This is a time when God is directly revealing things to people, And if you're not paying attention to who has received a direct revelation from God and who is acting on that direct revelation, you're going to miss the point. I've seen a lot of people biff these passages, and that's a good way to put it. It's biffable. If you're not paying attention to who's got the Word of God and who's acting on it, 
as we get into this, we're going to be starting to move out of Abraham's story and into the story of Isaac, of Jacob, of Esau, and, you know, talk about a dysfunctional family. It's going to seem like that. If you're not paying attention to who has the ball, it's really easy for you to miss the point. So we're going to pay attention to who has the ball. And so we are at Genesis chapter 25, where we last left off. Abraham sent his servant to go and get a wife for Isaac, and the Lord blessed his journey and came back with Rebekah. So we now continue with the story at Genesis 25, verse 1. Abraham took another wife, so Sarah's dead, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Nadan, Midian. You see this name right here, Midian? That is an important name. It's one you're going to see a lot of in the books ahead. The Midianites. Familiar with the Midianites? When Moses... He, when he flees Egypt, he goes to Midian. And his father-in-law is a Midianite. So these are direct descendants of Abraham. So their father is going to teach them the faith. And so the Midianites, at least early on in their history, they believe and worship the, the one true God because their father is Abraham. And then we hear about Ishbak Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba. Dedan, the sons of Dedan were the Asherim, Letushim, the Lemumim, verbal gymnastics. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, Eldaah. These were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, plural, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward toward the east country. Let's just say that Abraham in his old age was a busy man. Busy man. Now these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Bair, Lahai, Roy. Now these are the generations of Ishmael. So we're going to learn a little bit about Ishmael. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to him. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the first of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. He was kind of a guy who was constantly battling his kinsmen. Wild donkey of a man. These are the generations of Itzhak, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. And one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now it doesn't say where she goes to get this revelation from the Lord. It doesn't say. We don't know if she went to go visit Melchizedek. We don't know if 
she just went over a few tents and talked to Father Abraham. We're not sure uh, as to who she went to to inquire of the Lord, but she did receive a direct revelation. And so she's having a troubled pregnancy, if you would. She's got twins, and they're fighting inside, and things are going crazy, and she's going, why is this happening to me? And so the Lord explains to her, and this is the important thing. She has the ball right now. So she's got the ball. And the direct revelation she has received, because remember, we're following the bloodline of Christ, who, according to this direct revelation, is going to be the one who's the son of promise, the older or the younger? The younger. What's the rule of the day back there? The oldest son gets everything. So she's told while she's pregnant that the older will serve the younger, which means the younger is the son of promise. And she does not keep this to herself. There's no way for her to keep this to herself because she was struggling. You know, she was, why is this happening to me? So everything that we read from here on out has to be read through the lens of Rebecca is believing the direct revelation she's received and Isaac is acting contrary to it. If you don't keep that fact sorted out in your mind, what will happen is that you're going to believe that Rebecca is up to no good and that Isaac is in the right and that he's just being, well, deceived. But that's not what's going on. Rebecca has the ball. Keep that in mind. So here's what it says, verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. <laughs> That's a baby already he had to shave. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob or Jacob. Itzhak was 60 years old when she bore them. You remember how old he was when Rebecca became his wife? He was in his 40s, was he not? So they go for quite a stretch without any children. She was barren. It wasn't like she was just barren for a year or two. She was barren for a couple of decades. And then Isaac prays and she conceives. And now we've got twins. And Jacob, by the way, technically can mean heel grabber which is kind of a euphemism for you know, somebody who's deceptive. He's a heel grabber. Keep that in mind. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, so we just skip right over their childhood, and we get to this point. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of the red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread, lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Not good. Not good at all. Scripture faults Esau for this. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12. The verse in particular we want to look at is 16, but we're going to put this in context. Verse 12, chapter 12 of Hebrews. Therefore, lifting your drooping hands and strengthening your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may be not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So notice here, 
Scripture interpreting Scripture. The story that we just read in Genesis about the birthright being sold, the person who is faulted is not Jacob. The person who is faulted is Esau. And this is considered to be a sign of unholiness. Somebody who despises the good gifts that God has given and makes rash decisions. So rash that he's despising things that he should be cherishing. He's, for, for nothing, he's selling everything. Considered a sign of unholiness. Keep that in mind. Yep. That's okay. He saw he was the one that was like the rebel. He went out on his own and came back, famished, and Jacob fed him and demanded that Esau give him his birthright. Yeah, sold it for a bowl of stew. That was in Genesis, not in Hebrew. Then it is Esau, then that is, you probably just said this, but I'm. Yeah, Esau's faulted, not Jacob. Okay, but. It almost looks like Jacob took advantage of the situation. I mean, we all have done that, I'm sure. But, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but is this saying that we should not be selling ourselves out? Um, it, it's saying, when it talks about don't be unholy like Esau, you don't take things that are precious, and valuable, and important, and squander them for nothing. Okay, which is what he... Birthright was valuable. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, this is the, this would be like me saying to you, you know, David, you know, your your father upon his death is going to give you this huge inheritance, just absolutely ginormous inheritance. But I mean, you have to wait until he dies. But here's the thing: is is that you know, I know you're hungry, but I, I'll I've got this bowl of porridge. I'll sell it to you, and all you got to do is give me your inheritance. This seems ridiculous. I mean, if you would be just utterly foolish. To make such a rash decision, it doesn't matter how hungry you are. But you saw was there for the here and now, and, and did not look forward into what the greater good of what was for him. Right. All right. Faith first. I would I would say that Esau is obviously stronger than Jacob. He probably just didn't say, "Hey, look, give me that bowl, or I'm going to pound your face in. I'm not going to sell my birthright. It's way too important." Or he could have said, "Hey, I'm going to go talk. I'm going to go get food from somewhere else because I'm smart and capable." Yeah, I'm going to go to McDonald's. Yeah. I, mean, I could go kill myself <laughs> like a rabbit and eat it over a fire if you're going to be a jerk about it. Yeah. So, it's not like as much as that wasn't capable of getting food elsewhere. He just truly didn't care about it. He's like, I really truly don't. Stephen? In verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral and unholy like Esau. Isn't that interesting? Sexually immoral is equivalent to the unholiness that. That's right. There's kind of a parallel there in Hebrews 12. Yeah. So this is the kind of unholiness that is akin to, oddly enough, likened to sexual immorality. Is that is that have something to go with, like, uh, in sexual morality, um, you basically deny what uh, you originally were made? Yeah. In sexual immorality, you, it is literally the destruction of your own body. You're not only sinning against God, you're sinning against yourself when there's sexual immorality. So it's a type of unholiness that eats a person from the inside. We've got to eat. I mean, was that why there was sexual immorality? Because there's two different bodies in the baby, so the birthright would mean something more? Well, there was no sexual immorality with Jacob or Rebecca. And, and Isaac, is. there's no sexual immorality there. But as the story unfolds, we learn a little bit more about Esau. And there's an issue there as well that kind of plays out in this unholiness. Now keep in mind, Esau is a guy who really doesn't have faith. For real, he doesn't. And all of his actions are bearing fruit of unbelief and, and the despising of the things that are valuable. I can almost imagine this situation going down... You know, it's Jacob's in there doing his thing, making soup. Esau comes barging in. He's like, you know, I need food. And Jacob kind of like almost offhandedly, like, yeah, tell me your birthright. Yeah, I'll give you some soup. And he says, and he, and he kind of says that, and you know, he's like, yeah, what do you say to me? He's like, I 
I mean, come on. It's like, are you serious? Are you, are you swearing? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm, 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 I'm joking, but seriously, swear this to me, like, right now. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not passing this opportunity up. That's why I almost see the situation going down at this. Yeah, the text doesn't quite bear that out. I mean, I, maybe it went down like that, but Scripture doesn't say. But we do know this. Using Scripture interprets Scripture. The fault is placed on Esau. Jacob is the guy who believes. In fact, he's listed in the great hall of faith passage, Hebrews 11. Jacob is listed as one who has faith. In chapter 12, Esau is held up as an example of somebody who's unholy. So, despising valuable, precious things. Esau did not seem to really regret it till much later. Right, and it says that he repented even with tears, but it was already too late. So, you always say, where is the grace? But there are times when God does withhold. Right. And this is kind of an important thing as well. God's grace right now for us is for a season. There is a day coming when grace runs out. And so today's the day of salvation. Today we hear of God's mercy and His grace for sinners. There is a day coming when God says, Done. Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, and the day of grace runs out for sinners. In a sense, when we look at stories like this where we see God's judgment, keep in mind there are people who repent, or at least are sorry for their sins, but they don't have faith. Repentance has two parts. I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's contrition and sorrow for sin and trust simultaneously, trust and faith in the promises of the forgiveness of sin. And those who persist in sin and unbelief, or maybe have contrition for sin but don't believe, they still remain under God's judgment. And they're held up in Scripture as examples of what not to do. Does that make sense? Now, chapter 26. This is the like father, like son passage. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham and Itzhak went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Interesting that they show up so early, the Philistines do. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. And for you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father." I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give your, to your offspring all of these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So notice here, we're hearing the same promise we heard to Abraham, now being reiterated, the covenant, if you would, kind of reconnected, and this time it's come up to Isaac, and Isaac is the son of blessing. And Jacob, his son, is where the bloodline of Christ comes up to at this point. And so there's a famine, and God has promised to be with Isaac. He's promised him these things. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Here we go again. Right, And we pointed out the fact that when Abraham did this, he literally pimped out his wife. So apparently there's something going on with the women from where Abraham and Isaac are, you know, their descendants are from. The women are pretty hot. It says this, He feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah. So he knows that these are people without faith. That they're kind of lawless people. This is what at least he thinks because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. So Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. 
So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. In other words, Isaac didn't correctly... He didn't understand the men of Gerar. He considered them to be like the men of Sodom. And Abimelech's actions show they have morals. And he's concerned about incurring guilt because of sexual sin. Isaac did not correctly assess the situation, and Abimelech shows that they do have fear of God. This is an interesting thing, and thankfully I think this is the last time we see this behavior on the part of Jesus' bloodline. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now let me digress for a second. Every single word of faith Prosperity televangelist knows this text. They know it. And they preach it. And they'll say things like, well, see, look. Look at it. Look at how rich Isaac was. God wants you to be that rich too. Look how rich Abraham was. God wants you to be that rich too. You see the problem? You see, here's what they do is they take a passage like this and then they'll connect it to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, remember it's under the Mosaic Covenant, there are promises of blessing and wealth for those who obey the Mosaic Covenant. But what they fail to do, and they do this on purpose, is to mention, oh, that these are the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. And the covenant itself contains blessings and curses. And so they ignore the curses, focus only on the blessings, and say, see, if you're obedient to God, God's going to bless you. And then the same way he blessed Isaac, the same way he blessed Abraham. And what they're doing is they're basically playing fast and loose with the biblical text to create a promise that we're supposed to have health and wealth when there is no promise that each of us will have health and wealth. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's Rose Bros ramblings through Genesis. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart. Whoa, dude. Your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car and stuff? Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but, man, it's so smart, it's, like, really creepy. Huh, okay, man, this is cool. 
I guess we're going over to Luke's house then? Yeah. Hey, GPS. What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well, I guess we're going to have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And we're on our way, dude! In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray... What'd you think about the sermon last Sunday? Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude, it like totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing. And then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah. But it's even better than that. Really, man? Like, how so? Well, think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Well, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. All right, dude, I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking, I've got like some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So that make you like Luke Skywalker or something? Not even. I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The Force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the Force? That would make you, like, God. Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the Force. You're not Yoda. And you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Oh, well, I guess if I was a god, I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. Too soon? This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Down, click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, pursuit of wealth is uh, no indicator of um, sanctification. Yeah, and that there's no promise that you're ever going to be rich. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. Yeah, this is Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith in Pirate Christian Radio. Great way to support us, by the way. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. Let me thank you for your support. And just a reminder, we are in the middle of our fall bake sale to help us make budget, and we have increased the amount that we need to make every year uh, by at least $30,000 as we've brought on a part-time help for the new website that we'll be launching on October 31st, which is Reformation Day. Stay tuned for that. We're getting really close now. But uh, if you haven't already supported Fighting for the Faith, this would be a great time to join our crew and to pick up your T-shirt, the T-shirt that we're offering this year, the I Survived the Four Blood Moons, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt T-shirt. And uh, you can get it for nineteen ninety five plus shipping and handling. Just go to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the bake sale link at the top of the page and uh, get your uh, get your T-shirt today. All right. We are going to uh, continue with today's Rose Bros Ramblings through Genesis. Here we go. Here's the idea, is that when we're reading a historical narrative, which is what we're reading, which is the genre, all right, when you look at the Bible, there's different genres. You have historical narrative, you have Proverbs, you have the Psalms, you have the Prophets, then you have the Gospels, the four Gospels, and then you have these epistles, and then throw into the mix, you have these apocalyptic books, like the book of Daniel, parts of Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation. They're very difficult to interpret because there's there's symbols in them that have meaning towards something else. The symbols have, and so, but in this particular text, we're in a historical narrative. Nowhere in this text is there a promise given to everybody that they are going to be wealthy in the same way that Isaac is wealthy. And so when we read historical narratives, I can take you to texts where we find people who are poor, who are poverty-stricken. Okay, if you think of Gideon, you know the story of Gideon? Gideon was from like some tiny, you know, obscure tribe, the smallest of the obscure tribes. And he was not a wealthy man. In fact, when we find him, he is basically taking care of his crops in hiding. He's hiding in a cistern for fear that Israel's enemies are going to come and take everything that he has. Israel's in complete poverty at that time. So here's the thing. I can take you to a historical narrative and show you here's a lot of poverty. How come you can't say from that that God promises to give you poverty? Right? You can't. So the idea here is, is you have to be careful how you read your Bible. Don't create a promise that isn't there. 
Notice we just read the promise. The promise was reiterated to Isaac from Yahweh. And the promise was that all the earth would be blessed through his seed, his descendant. So we do have a promise that applies to everybody. And that promise is the promise of Christ. The whole world will be blessed through him. And so we, through the promise that was given to Abraham and the promise that was then reiterated to Isaac, we have that blessing that was promised to them. And that blessing has a name. His name is Jesus. And he's bled and died for us and forgiven us of our sins. And he sustains us and he's given us eternal life as a gift. And we are blessed. Now, keep in mind that we are the nations. We're not Jews. Is anyone here genetically Jewish? A lot of Norwegians here, right? I'm a German-European mutt of some kind. So we are blessed by the promised seed. That's the promise. But nowhere in Scripture are we promised that we will be rich like Him. Nowhere. Okay. Am I off to here? This is one of the propaganda stories of Western Europe and then of the Nazis and the fascists in the 20th century. There was this caricature of Jews that they were wealthy and that they were the ones responsible for the world banking system and all this kind of stuff. And so here's what happened, is that that propaganda story about the world's Jews then became the scapegoat story that was used in Germany between World War I and World War II for the poverty that was the people there experienced as a result of the war reparations requirements with the Treaty of Versailles. Would it be too far-fetched for me to say that the word of faith heresy people have created false sacraments? Uh, you know, creating a false promise attached to a certain rite or ritual. Like, so basically, you do this, then you will get well. So it's a false sacrament. In a sense, I love how Pastor Wolf Mueller at the Pirate Christian Radio Conference talked about it. He calls it magic. And here's how their theology works. God is up in heaven, and this is, kind of, this is kind of a way of describing it. He's up in heaven, and he's got his arms crossed, and he's looking down at you. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you wealth. He wants to give you health, and this is all going to be to demonstrate his power in your life. He's going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. This is the way they talk. So you sit there and go, wow, that sounds pretty cool. I mean, because I'm looking at my bills going... Yeah, they're kind of expensive. And, you know, of course, I need a new car, and it would be nice to upgrade the clothes, and, of course, be nice to have, you know, an addition put on that cabin at the lake. You know, and th- you know, think, I could, I could really use with all this financial blessings. So you sit there and go, well, what do I got to do? Well, see, remember, God's up there in heaven. He's, his arms are crossed. He wants to help you, but he kind of can't. He kind of can't until you do something. And here's what you have to do. You have to recognize that words create reality. Remember when God spoke the universe into existence? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Well, see, that same principle works for you too. So God apparently created the world by faith, by speaking words of faith. And he said, let there be light, and he believed that it would be, and blammo, there was. So you too... Here's all you got to do. You have to look at yourself in the mirror and you need to speak words of faith over yourself. Positive words of faith. And those positive words can be something like, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, I'm wise. I'm the head, I'm not the tail. God knows the plans that he has for my life and they are for good. And see, you decree and declare these things with your words. You step out in faith and all of a sudden God up in heaven goes, you got it! And then he just starts showering you with blessings. Wow. What a stupid idea. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the other thing. You really want to get God's attention. Oh, oh, oh. Here's how you do it. You step out in faith and you sow a seed into my ministry and make sure it financially stretches you. 
And that will prove to God that you really have faith. So, like, right now, if you want to sow a seed into my ministry, make your check payable to Pirate Christian Radio. You know, or Chris Rosebro. Let's just, just get right to the point. You know, here, let's, you know, make it to Chris Rosebro. And see, when you write that check, and I mean, and, and you might, you might want to give like half of your savings, or maybe even clear out your whole bank account. Because that'll show God that you truly have faith. Because then He'll bless you. They don't say it that way. Didn't He bless me with the money that He gave? Well, don't you want more? <laughs> and so, you know, and this is how they talk. And so they say, look, Isaac's wealthy. Isaac's, do you want to be wealthy like him? And the fact that he was wealthy proves that he was, you know, creating his wealth through his words of faith. I know it's, it's a sham, isn't it? But is his spirit is so many people Yeah, they do. Now here's what happens. God nowhere promises to bless people if they step out and speak words of faith and you know try to create the future with their audacious faith or anything like that. And God is nowhere obligated himself to make you wealthy because you wrote a large check to a televangelist. Nowhere. And so you know what happens? People write those checks. They say these words over themselves. And you know what happens? Nothing. Well, actually, it's worse than nothing because... Every year that goes by in your life, the decrepitude creeps upon you and it gets worse. Rather than getting healthier, you are less healthier today than you were when you were 18, are you not? Sure, you may be able to save up, over time you're saving money, but you're going to look at your bank account and say, it's not much of a difference. I mean, I don't see blessings being showered upon me from heaven, right? Still can't afford that extra add-on. To the cabin at the lake, can I? You sit there and you say, it's not working. You told me God wants to bless me and I'm not seeing any results. Who's the person getting wealthier though? The televangelist. The one who wants the $65 million Gulfstream jet. He's getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, filling people's minds with this stuff while they're all sitting there doubting, going, what's going on? They're thinking... Christianity isn't true. Have they been taught Christianity? No. They begin to have doubts. And when they express those doubts, they're probably never going to be able to have a face-to-face conversation with the televangelist who's been telling him these things. But they now go to a church where the pastor follows that televangelist. And so they're getting the same theology. So they go and they talk to their pastor and say, Listen, you know, not only are things not getting better, the doctor just gave me a report that I have cancer. And you know what those pastors say? It's your fault. You don't have enough faith. If you had more faith, this wouldn't be happening to you, and you would be wealthy. You would be healthy. Well, stop the earthly things again. Oh, yeah. Earthly versus spiritual. And remember what Jesus said in the sermon today. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which is Christ Himself. Do not store up for yourselves, Jesus said, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up for yourself treasures where? Heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy. So in other words... Christ nowhere promises you this kind of wealth. He doesn't promise it to me. This world, in a sense, is kind of like haphazard in how somebody becomes wealthy. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. It would appear for all intents and purposes. There's a lot of wicked people out there who have a lot of money. And then there's a lot of faithful, penitent believers in Jesus Christ who are just eking by. How is that fair? Let's take a look at a passage to kind of flesh this out. Ecclesiastes. Money becomes an idol. It sure does. Yeah, you're right. Money becomes an idol. And for the person who's out there preaching that God wants you to be wealthy and healthy, his God is not Jesus. His God is money. Make no mistake about it. But you, you said random because God does allow very faithful people to be wealthy. Yeah, He does. He has a lot of wicked people that are just struggling from day to day. Exactly. Yeah. 
I mean, well, let me ask you a question. You remember the tsunami that struck? Well, actually, two, the one in Japan and then the one in Indonesia before that. When the tsunami was coming on shore, they'd sit there and go, okay, Christian, 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 you guys get up on the high land, and then pagan, 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 you're dead. It didn't. It, made, it was absolutely indifferent to who was being killed. This took everything. Now, I'm going to show you this. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes. You're kind of in the right part. You're in the right neighborhood, but let's, let's take a look at what's going on here. Remember, sin is now in our creation. We're now under a curse. And here's what Ecclesiastes says. I'll start at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is Solomon who wrote this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Interesting word I'm using the ESV. Let's take a look at the NIV. Notice what the NIV says. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, if you think that's depressing, how do you think the book ends? Watch verse 8 here of the last chapter. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Yeah, fear God and keep His commandments. So kind of still on the same theme. So here's the idea. This world, this creation, right now, is a good way to think about it is that we are in a theological culvert. And we're just circling. We're not going anywhere at all. We're not really progressing, are we? Our technology makes us think that we're progressing, but the reality is, is all the technology has done is kind of given us the same thing with a new medium. It's still words. We're still reading. Think about this. Same thing. So let's keep reading. So vanity of vanities. All is meaningless. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes. But the earth remains forever. Where are your grandparents right now, folks? Dead. Yeah. They're not here, are they? There was a time when they were young, and they're not. There was a time when they were healthy, lucid mind, strong body, and they're not. So generations come, generations go. The earth remains. Sun rises, sun goes down. It hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. And around and around goes the wind. And on its circuit, the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. The circle of life. Disney kind of glorifies it. Solomon here is just tearing it down. When you're in that circle, where do you go? You die. We're stuck in a rut. We're stuck in a circle. We're spinning our wheels as a race. Imagine where we would be if Adam and Eve were still alive. The knowledge that they would have. The wisdom that they could give us. But all of the knowledge and wisdom that we have collectively right now, it's going to end up out there. Well, yeah, this is a result of the devil's work. But see the point I'm making here? We're not really progressing anywhere, are we? Sure, our clothes are manufactured for us, and we don't have to sit there and have our ladies make the fabric on a loom. It's still clothes. We plant crops in the ground. They grow up. They feed us. And you have to plant them again. Now this, this year, we've got really expensive green tractors and combines and stuff like that which make it so that our fields, the yield that they give is ridiculous. 
it's still farming. And everybody you feed today, they're going to be dead tomorrow. Your life is a vapor. This life is, and this is what Ecclesiastes is teaching us, at the end of the day, it's ultimately meaningless. Or all working for material things. Yeah, which makes no sense. If you just open your eyes and look around you, you're going to say, I'm a sojourner here. I'm not going to be here for very long. What's the point in accumulating wealth? Solomon kind of gets into this. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which I just said, see, this is new? You said, well, my iPad. All it is is a digital book, and we've had books for how long? Pastor, if we didn't have this drive to better ourselves daily, where would this world be? I mean, this world needs the makers for the takers to live. Well, yeah. Yeah, but see, here's the thing. Where have we really gotten to? Let's take a look. Egypt, 3,000 years ago. Do you know what their people did? They had cities. They had writing, they had books, they had farmers and they had farms. They had criminals and they had people who were responsible for, for rounding them up and putting them in prison and punishing them and things like that. It's the same thing. You know what's changed? We've improved the technology to make it so that we're more efficient at these things. You just go back in time, just trace it all back. You and I, we've all been here before. Same group of people, in a sense, and I mean, figuratively speaking, they lived a hundred years ago. They just didn't have as nice a stuff as we have now. And if the earth tarries, you know what's going to happen? This same group of people, through our descendants, is going to be gathering in a church a hundred years from now, and they're going to have even better technology than televisions and iPads and stuff like that. But it's still all words. They're going to be eating food that was grown in the ground, and their society is going to have the same problems that our society has, you know, with evil, corrupt politicians, crime, and things like that. It's this, we haven't gotten anywhere. We're reading two thousand year old. Yeah, how long ago was this written? Is anything different? There's always going to be some maniac who wants to take over the world, who's going to create a movement and get everybody to follow him, set the world on fire, cause a war. Maybe he'll lose, maybe he'll win. At the end of the day, he's going to die and he'll have nothing anyway. So they gave him the king for his kind of wars. He did this war, right? He did this war. Because all it is is killing and yeah. kings and murders and I hate kings. Is that why there's um, scripture talking about how we're like a soldier in Christ's army? Well, in a sense, yeah, the yes and no. Hold that thought. I want you to hold that thought. I want you to think about this for a second here. At the end of the day, after we've gathered wealth or power or fame or whatever to ourselves, where do we end up? In the ground. What did that really benefit us? Nothing. Nothing. Now, there's only one person who's broken this cycle. The circle of life. It's Jesus. He rose again from the grave. He got out of the circle. We won't. Not on our own. If we're in Christ, we're going to break free of this circle. See, Christ, because of the fall, has subjected the whole world to futility. This is what Scripture says. The whole creation has been subjected to futility. Literally, if you want to think of it this way, we're all just circling in the water in the toilet bowl. So the idea here is, is that this is the culvert that we're stuck in. And if you want to understand what's really going on, you need to take a hard look at what's going on in Ecclesiastes. And this is part of the reason why the whole prosperity thing completely fails. Because Solomon, he actually set out you know, to gain wealth for himself. And he comes up with a, a, a verdict on it. Let's keep reading. Is there anything of which it is said, see, this is new. It is already in the ages before. It has already been in the ages before. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of the latter things. 
yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity, meaningless, and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also meaningless. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was meaningless, striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So notice this. He had his wisdom, and he strove after riches and wealth and did not deny himself anything that he wanted. And at the end of the day, when he summed it all up, it was all meaningless and a striving after the wind. Where is Solomon's great palace today? Nowhere. Where's his gardens today? How about all of his concubines? They're not there either. It's all meaningless and a striving after the wind. So here's my question. Why would God have as the goal of Christianity to basically give Christians something that's meaningless and striving after the wind, which is what wealth is? He wants us to believe in the Holy Spirit and have our riches in heaven. He wants us to have our riches in heaven. Christ is our great reward. So the idea is that the one who is saying that the end is having your best life now, you remember, there's a book by that title, written by Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now. Well, if you're going to have your best life now, what does that mean regarding eternity? Where will you be? You better adjust his thoughts. <laughs> yeah, Right. And see, when you turn somehow wealth into something that God wants to give you, if you stretch out in faith, then what happens is, is that the wealthiest among us, they're the holiest. They're the most like God, right? What do you say then about the people who live in third world nations who are Christians? Well, God clearly is cursing them. They just don't have enough faith. They brought this on themselves. This sounds a lot like the Hindu caste system to me, does it not to you? And yet... Solomon reveals to us through the Holy Spirit that the pursuit of wealth is all meaningless. 
Oh, that's the thing. Now, what Solomon goes on to do is he, you know, he goes after pleasure, he goes after wealth, he even goes after charity and, you know, and good works and things like this. At the end of the day, everything is meaningless. And you have to first understand this. What has Jesus said? The one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life will find it. You want to find true meaningfulness? Learn to hate everything that you're seeing around you. See it for what it is. And in Christ, you have purpose. And your good works are truly precious in God's sight, even in this culvert that we're stuck in right now. So the idea here is, is that the true something that's truly meaningful begins with penitent faith in Christ in our baptisms being united with Him in His death and resurrection, knowing that we're going to spin out of this culvert eventually. And so now, we can pour our lives out as a drink offering. You want true meaningfulness? It's not about you or living for you. It's about pouring yourself out as a drink offering in love and service to your neighbor in whatever your hand finds for you to do to help them. And that can only be done in Christ. All right, we'll end there and we'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, run in there at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>